Welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect authors with new listeners and provide advice to aspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. So hi there, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. And this week we have an amazing author. Her name is MK Martin. So MK, you want to say hello to the listeners? Hello, listeners. Awesome. I was just telling um, her that I am in between events while I'm recording. So I got to share this with the listeners because y'all know I love the Pacific Northwest and all of our funky stuff that we do. And I was just at the Sasquatch Festival in my area <laughs> where I connected with a bunch of other authors and um, beer and brew. And there's a huge following of Sasquatch. Sasquatch followers, Bigfoot. So very exciting event. So I encourage anybody that lives in my area to make sure you get down there next year because it's a lot of fun. But let's talk a little bit with you, MK. Tell us a little bit about yourself, um, uh, starting out with what state from the Pacific Northwest you're from. Um, I'm from Eugene, Oregon, most recently. So um, yeah, things like the Sasquatch Festival, um, the Country Fair, like the fairy fair. We've, we've got all kinds of the greatest festivals. Oh, we do. I love it. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's very exciting to live in the Pacific Northwest, but you also know that I try to downplay it because um, there's not a lot of room here to live anymore. <laughs> oh, no, it's terrible and rainy and nobody else should yeah, move here. It's very depressing. <laughs> so, so what do you do if you do a day job? Do you have a day job besides being an author? Um, I do have a day job, but it's it's sort of tr- peripheral to being an author. I'm an editor and a proofreader, so ah. it, it's really great. No, perfect. I just um, I've been interviewing some editors on the podcast as well to give us their insights about. Um, the actual process of working with an editor. So it's a whole new, for me, it's a new aspect of working with an editor. So good. I'm glad that you're involved in the writing industry on top of writing. So that must be really exciting (laughs) for you. So not much of a jump from one to the other. Um, I always ask this major stumper question for my um, authors at the very beginning. So if you haven't listened to the podcast, you probably know what's coming. So I like to know if you could share one thing about yourself to listeners, to these listeners, what would that be? And it can be anything. Oh, goodness. Um, I think I, I am a frustrated biology nerd. So <laughs> that, that is definitely my first love. And it comes through um, like viruses, bacteria, diseases in general. Um, my, my spouse was joking about it. He's like, we should take you to on a tour of the headquarters of the CDC in Atlanta. And I think that is just like the most romantic gesture that anybody could make. I love it. <laughs> well, this that's so funny you said romantic because I was, like I said, I was at this festival with my husband. We were drinking a beer. Yes, it's early, but we started drinking the beer. And this gal came up to us, this older gal came up to us and just asked, so you guys married? And we said, yeah. And she's like, what's the most romantic thing he's ever done for you? And I'm like, wait a minute, before I answer this, what are you doing? Are you doing research for a book? I'm like, of course I knew she was an author. <laughs> And she goes, I am. And so then my husband like dumbfounded because I like got on the wavelength immediately with researching. And so we talked with her a long time about it, gave our most romantic thing. And, and it's um, funny because I was explaining to my husband afterwards, like us authors, we're very bold and we'll do research anywhere. <laughs> it's important <laughs> for our, ourselves. So I think he should take you there. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Well, you'll have to let us know if you do. Um, so 
when did you know you were an author? We're going to start talking about the writing process, but when did you know? Was it early on in your life? Did it come later on? Did you stumble upon it? Um, I So when I first started reading, I didn't know that people who read didn't also write stories. So it was not so much that I, I realized I was an author, but after a while, I just realized that other people weren't. Oh, so that, that's, that's kind of how it happened for me. I love um, it. Yeah, all through high school. I mean, I just like hid away in my room and wrote and read and, and had no social life. Um, and then when I was in college, I kind of made up for all of that. So, you know, classes and work and um, relationships and everything. So I stopped writing for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I joined the military, strangely enough, um, when I was deployed, you know, I I had some downtime and had a lot of you know, just sitting around with a notebook in my cargo pocket and Mm -hmm. started writing again. Mm, Fantastic. Well, first, let me ask what branch in the military you were in and and what did you do? Because I'm interested now. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, I was in the Army. Um, I worked in military intelligence, which I know everybody says, oh, it's an oxymoron. Um, And the job that I did was working with... um, so it's called human, which is human intelligence. So basically mm-hmm. it's talking to people. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's the Americans who go out and talk to local, um, you know, try to figure out how, how can we make the situation better? How can we work with locals? Mm-hmm. And then the other sort of the scary aspect of the, the job that I did was I was also an interrogator. Mm. And I say, I say scary because there's there's been a lot of, things that get associated with interrogators that actual interrogators don't do. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that um, there's a lot of uh, fiction in what we see in movies and things like that about interrogation when I kind of feel like it would be more just really asking the right questions <laughs> and to pose the correct way. <laughs> so. Exactly. It has a lot more to do with psychology and a lot less to do with waterboarding than you mm-hmm. would believe if you'd seen, you know, Jack Bauer 24 kind of interrogation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say from my heart, thank you so much for your service. And I'm very glad that that time was also productive for you as a writer. So that's, that's very exciting <laughs> that, that it gave you the downtime to write. Um, and I'm sure that what you were experiencing and the people you were interviewing and involvement probably helped you to become a really great writer. <laughs> so, so thank you so much. I appreciate the You're service. You're welcome. Um, so tell us a little bit about your writing process before we jump into what you write about. Um, do you, now that you know, are you writing often maybe, and you work with people as an editor, do you have a specific process when you're working on a draft? Do you just write it all and then edit, you know, do you take time away? Kind of walk us through your process. Well, I have to admit, and I know a dear friend of mine, um, will probably be listening to this podcast and laughing maniacally because mm-hmm. I've always considered myself a panster. You know, I just sit yeah. down and the words flow and it's just an amazing journey of discovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of how I wrote my first book, which is the first of a series. Um, and then I realized as I'm writing, you know, book two, that I can't do that anymore because now there's a history. There's this mm-hmm. world that I've created and there's, there's promises that have been made in book one that have to be answered in book two or have to be, you know, moved along to book three. Mm-hmm. Um, so very grudgingly, <laughs> I'm, le- <laughs> I'm learning the value of plot and structure. And I find 
um, that sitting down and doing some plotting ahead of time has made my writing time much more productive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it seems counterintuitive that I'll sit there and spend about a half an hour plotting when I really just want to start typing right away. Mm-hmm. But if I take that time in front and do my plotting, then when I do start writing, the writing is faster and easier. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's so interesting because I honestly feel the same way. I, I don't have a book published yet. You probably don't know this about me, but I'm working on my first draft, which started the genesis of this podcast, was as I started to write and get to know authors and ask a lot of questions, the podcast formed. And I'm like, this is such great information. I got to share it with everybody. <laughs> um, but the part for me at first, I thought I was going to be a panster because that's how the story came out at first was just kind of, I couldn't keep it quiet. My mm. brain was just going. So I had to get it out on paper. But then as I was moving through it, I'm like, wait, there's so many plot holes. I need to plan out what's happening. So then I spent some time, you know, really doing outline and, and doing some planning around it. And now I'm going back and rewriting that first draft and editing um, with my writer's group before I hire an editor. And I'm so glad I planned some things out. <laughs> it makes my <laughs> time so much faster, like you said. <laughs> Yeah, so I think I think it's a mix between the two. Honestly, that's my belief now. I could be wrong. Yeah. But I think it's a mix between the two. So, do you write at specific times of the day? Do you set aside time to write in your busy day, um, or do you just write when it comes to you? Um, I so because I'm an editor, I have actual people who pay me real money to do a job. <laughs> yeah, which is, is different from being a writer. <laughs> it, it Unfortunately. <laughs> So, you know, when, when those people have paid me to do my job, that's, that's what I've got to do first. So I, I go out and I do that first. And then I will often sneak in some writing while that's going on. So mm-hmm. none of my clients should be listening to this. No, oh, no, she never does that. <laughs> <laughs> because what will happen is I, I, oftentimes as I'm working on somebody else's book, then I realize, oh, I really love the way that they did this scene mm-hmm. or you know, this, just the, their use of emotion in this, you know, part of the story is so amazing. And wouldn't that be great if I did something similar in mine? So it helps me, it actually kind of helps me fix things that are going on in my own story yeah. to cheat off of other people's papers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, it's true. Authors help each other so much in that respect. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let me ask you this, as an editor, you have connection with other editors. Do you hire an editor after a few drafts for yours? I do. Well, actually, I'm, I'm, I am lucky in the fact that I have a traditional publisher and my publisher ah. is an editor. So I didn't have to. But yes, even though I myself am an editor, I mean, no writer or editor is ever going to catch all of everything that mm-hmm. they've seen. Absolutely. You know, every mistake in their story. So you do. You really do need another pair of eyes and preferably not your mom or yes. your <laughs> I'm learning this lesson and that's the like number one thing that I had to embrace was the idea of having other pair of eyes, professional pair of eyes on my work. You know, it's, it's something that has, I was terrified about it, but now I'm so excited about getting to that stage, you know, cause it only helps to make the story so much stronger. So, so very cool. Well, you segued into your publishing journey, just a hair um, about being a, you know, traditionally published. So share with us, let's first start about your genre, what you write. Um, you can share with us the titles and then go into the aspect of your journey. Did you start out traditional publishing? Are you with an indie company? I kind of know that answer, but nobody mm. else does. 
Um, so yeah, um, I am, as I said, traditionally published. It's a small press, um, out of Independence, Oregon, and I just love it because it couldn't be out of a more perfect place. Um, it's not a pipe publishing and the, the folks in charge of that are Paige and Ben Gorman. And I believe you had interviewed Ben. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And he's, he's tremendous, um, wonderful writer and a wonderful publisher as well. So, um, that was really helpful for me to, to kind of have help in navigating that journey because I know a lot of people are doing self-publishing, um, but it can feel very daunting. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got, I've got some friends who are going through self-publishing now and I'm just sitting in the wings, like frantically scribbling notes so that, um, I, I can figure out if I ever decide to go that route myself, Mm -hmm. what are they doing? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's it, and I did have Ben on the uh, podcast, and I'm not sure in what order listeners Ben's going to come, um, you know, with um, in case interviews. So if you haven't heard Ben's podcast, it'll be out soon. And if you have, um, then I'm glad you did. So Ben was so fabulous, and I was so thrilled because I also knew he had a lot of authors that are you know on his his publishing company. So I, that's how we got you on the show. Um, but the thing that I love about the idea of an indie publishing, cause I'm on the fence still, I'm not in any way, shape or form in a place to where I'm ready to start pursuing that aspect of it. I traditionally started out with the idea of self-publishing and I keep getting moved in my mind towards an independent publishing company. Cause I like the idea of additional people's help. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of being part of a group like that. But what I found and, and talk with us a little bit about the marketing aspect for you, because I'm sure you do most of your own marketing, right? Mm, I, I, I do. Um, so one of the things that, again, Ben and, and the folks at Not A Pipe have been really good about is um, they can get access to um, kind of writer conferences and, you know, some things that as an individual self-publishing author, it's a little bit more difficult for you Mm -hmm. to, you know, just, Hey, I'm so-and-so and and I have a book, Mm -hmm. um, just like, you know, 500,000 other writers. Um, so, so there is some access that they, they have that I don't. And the other thing that has been really helpful with working with an indie press is the other authors like are just like the cross promotion is great and they've all been so generous and you know we kind of all you know repost and retweet and reblog mm-hmm. all of each other's stuff so um, there's kind of this great ripple effect of just having this this built-in community of being with a small press mm-hmm. um, and I think that because it's a small press we probably each get a lot more attention from Ben like. And, and the folks at Not A Pipe, I feel like if I called them up or emailed them, I would get a response like right away, you know, not mm-hmm. just one of those, you know, you're not Stephen King, so we don't care who you are kind yeah, of responses. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, what's really interesting, listeners, about Not A Pipe is the genre of um, authors that they publish and they're branching out a little bit more. So Ben talked about that. But MK, tell us what you what your genre is because I was on your website and I love how you categorized it. So share with our listeners <laughs> what you what you are work what you write. So I write um, sci-fi science fiction mostly. Um, and this is a post-apocalyptic story. My first novel is Survivor's Club. So it's um, the beginning of a viral apocalypse. Um, so if you like Walking Dead or Resident Evil or Contagion, um, anything like that, 
that's, you know, go out and get my book. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I love it. I'm a big apocalypse fan. I'm, a lot of people don't know that about me, but I, I'm a huge sci-fi freak. Um, very big. Uh, but I write historical fiction, which is really funny because I'm a big historical my background is library science, and, and so I tend to do a lot of historical research. Someday, my desire is to write where I bring in a lot of history into sci-fi or, you know, apocalyptic something or other, and I have something working in my mind on that. Um, so, yeah, I have, oh, my favorite book of all times. I want to kind of explore rewriting it because it's in, it's in domain, you know, public domain now. But I'm not going to talk mm-hmm. too much about it yet because I don't even have the first book out of my own first fork. So... <laughs> But I have plenty of ideas to keep me going for the next 35 years. <laughs> well, that is that is a great writer problem to have. You're blessed. It is. It really is. So what inspires you um, as an apocalyptic writer um, and probably your background, you know, with military, things like that? You know, I don't, I'm guessing that's what inspires you, right? Mm. Um, but what inspires you to write? Um, so a couple of things, one, I've, I've just always written and, and the more writing that I do, the more I I think, um, and not to say that it's not inspired writing, but the more I think of it as, you know, you just got to show up and write whether or not you're inspired. Um, the things that sort of keep me going, the motivation is, um, I want, I have a, a young daughter and I want her to see me making some kind of impact in the world. And the way that I feel I can best make an impact in the world is by telling stories. And also I just can't help myself. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's the bug and you can't get rid of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, it's one of the few addictions that you can have. Um, and people don't want to send you to treatment. They just want to help you <laughs> sort of wallow in it. That's so fantastic. I haven't heard anybody say it like that, but it's true. <laughs> it's definitely an addiction and somewhat authors have somewhat of a psychosis in the sense that we have other people speaking to us that we have to write down what they're saying. Exactly. And so I love it. That's great. My daughters are definitely my inspiration too. That My daughters know this. My husband is an inspiration for me too. My husband's the one that keeps just telling me, just write, just write. You're a great writer. That's what I fell in love with is your writing. And, um, but my daughters uh, are very, they're all, they're grown, two of them, and they're very independent women in the world, which I'm proud of. But I always wanted to leave them a legacy that I did it all. My whole vision was to go back to school, get a great career in education. And then my final part was become a published author. And um, so that's the last part I'm working on now. <laughs> Side note, do podcasts and everything else. <laughs> So I, I love that you have a similar inspiration with your daughter. So that's great. So let's talk a little bit about, um, you talked about your network that you have with um, the publishing company. And I love to share with um, aspiring authors on the podcast, any additional resources or support groups that you might recommend to them. And I put them on show notes so, so that mm. people like me that are kind of getting started out there, they might not know where to go. Um, so do you have anything like that you can share? They can be online resources or they can be, you know, face-to-face groups, things like that. What do you recommend to somebody that's starting out that really needs a group or some sort of network? Oh, so um, I was actually just talking with a couple of writer friends about the 
the necessity of writers group and a writers community and having that support. So I'm glad you asked. Oh, I'm glad. (laughs) I do have some resources to share. Um, So if you're in the Pacific Northwest, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a wonderful group called Willamette Writers. And Mm -hmm. I know they have chapters all over the place. They have one. I know for a fact they have Eugene and then in Portland. And I don't know where else. We Um, just started one in a Vancouver area. So I'm pretty excited about that. (laughs) Well, there you go. And they're they're spreading out. Um, And then if you are um, local to Eugene, and even if you're not, um, the writers group that I've been involved with in Eugene is called Eugene Writers Anonymous. Oh, nice. Um, So, and then the other one that I do highly recommend, again, this is like if you're in Eugene area or if you feel like making a road trip to Eugene, um, Word Crafters of Eugene, they do a ton. So Word Crafters does a ton of classes. Um, They do a ton of like uh, craft workshops and seminars and just kind of the business, not just the business of being a writer, but there is more of kind of the business of being a writer and mm-hmm. um, some of the learning pieces that I think writers don't necessarily get. Like you kind of go through high school English and then they, you know, make you read a couple classics and throw you out the door. And most people yeah. are like, I, I still know nothing about writing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, these books. So I think Word Crafters does a good job of, of helping to fill in some of that education for writers that they do need as part of being a professional writer. Um, and Eugene Writers Anonymous is more of like just support, like whether you've had a good day and you just want to go and brag about writing, you know, 5,000 words today, or if you've had a bad day and you're like, I didn't even put on pants. People are like, I'm right there with you. <laughs> yes. The struggle is real listeners. <laughs> writers. <laughs> We're lucky if we can make it through the day sometimes. <laughs> I love it. Well, we'll make sure, MK, that we have those uh, resources listed in show notes for those that are in Southern Oregon area, mid, you know, so they can connect. My daughter was originally had got married and moved to um, Roseburg, Oregon, and she spent a lot of time in Eugene because they have a very had a very good group of friends in Eugene, so very partial to the Eugene area. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, so we'll make sure that there's that information for listeners. So listeners love to hear from our authors as far as their actual reading, you know, the book and or work that they have. So uh, I would love to sit back and listen. So MK, share with us. I don't know if you shared with us already your titles. I don't think so. So share with, with us your titles that you have already published and then share with us what you're going to read from and give us a little bit of background about that particular story that you can, you know, some backstory, that kind of thing that doesn't reveal too much. And then um, I'm going to sit back and listen to you read. Sure. Okay. So I will start out. Um, I've got a couple of short stories that have been published in anthologies. Um, and there's one that's coming out from Not a Pipe Publishing um, that's called Strongly Worded Women. Um, there's another one. Oh, goodness. I should know what, what my own books are called. Um, there's another anthology, um, a couple other ones that, I, that I've had published in anthologies. And the debut novel is called Survivor's Club. And I'm just going to start out with chapter one. So I'm not going to do a lot of setup. Um, just, just so folks know, though, I think I've already given a bit of a teaser. You know, it's sort of Walking yeah. Dead, Resident Evil, that sort of thing. But there's, there's more science in there. I like, I Ooh, want I like it. <laughs> like actual science in this possible. Fantastic. Um, All righty. All right. So chapter one, uh, subject 12, location Harrow Hall Preparatory School, Upstate New York, March, Year Zero. 
Subject Telf had forgotten her name. She'd forgotten her boyfriend and her dog, her parents, her friends, school. The only thing she remembered was that horrible day, the day she'd come to Harrow Hall. They'd promised her a scholarship, gifted, they'd said, a prodigy, an ideal candidate. The headmaster had congratulated her and offered her a private tour of the school. Now all she knew was the pushing, pressing pain inside her. Everything was swelling and twisting. She moaned, but her throat was a bending straw. The sound came out as a bubbly croak. High above her, a single bulb flickered to life. The room was bare and empty except for the rolling medical cabinet locked inside of a mesh cage in the corner. Subject 12 writhed and struggled against the restraints that held her to the gurney, but it only made the pain worse. She sobbed. Even her tears had turned against her, flowing out in a hot mess of milky salt and stinking pus. Section break. Dr. Rasmussen had never been in love, but he understood what it must feel like as he peered into the microscope. Before him lay the perfect beauty of a virus, not just any virus. He'd spent years searching for this filovirus, hunting various strains, even ever seeking the base strain. The long slender filament would cause hem hemorrhagic fevers, a cousin of Ebola and Merberg. It exhibited, ox uh, excuse me, it exhibited oncogenetic tendencies, but unlike other cancer-causing viruses, which used, which caused the chaotic growth, the new growth of this virus created was organized. It could force its host to grow, to change, to become. The backdoor motion detector chimed and the little red light on Rasmussen's computer lit up. He stepped back and looked around the room, momentarily disoriented at finding the macro world where he'd left it. The lab was filled with aging equipment and the ghosts of machines gone, the rust-stained outlets outlines a testament to better days. Various sample vials and petri dishes stood guard in orderly rows in their sealed environs, environments. Shelves packed with vials and bottles lined the walls. Jars and bins full of chemicals huddled together like refugees in their pressurized hooded cupboards. In the corner near the door stood an emergency shower wash that he used frequently to freshen up after all-nighters. Before opening the back door, Dr. Rasmussen checked the security camera display. Subject 12 lay twisting in her restraints. Despite the grainy security feed, Rasmussen's practice gaze easily picked out the swollen, discolored lumps just under the girl's chin. Another failure. He heaved a deep sigh and switched to the display to show the back door. Outside, the rain fell in steady sheets. The courier, who'd rung, waited with the collar of his windbreaker turned up. His short red hair bristled in soaked spikes. Rasmussen frowned. It wasn't Mr. Tate. Much as he disliked surprises, especially at this delicate juncture, his insatiable curiosity drove him to tap the intercom button. Where's Tate? Mr. Tate had urgent business in D.C. He said you'd want this information immediately. Dr. Rasmussen frowned. And who are you? The courier held up a hand to ward off the spatter of rain as he looked towards the security camera, providing a clear view of his face. Name's Davidson. Mr. Tate and I have mutual friends in D.C. He asked me to handle this personally. He said it's very sensitive. I'm calling Tate. He'd better vouch for you. Rasmussen clicked off the intercom. On screen, he could see Davidson's cocky grin and shrug. Rasmussen yanked open his desk drawer and rifled through the accumulating bric-a-brac that seemed to breed whenever he wasn't paying attention. He didn't have time for more false leads. He punched the numbers and waited with gritted teeth. Tate here, came the nasally tones of Mr. Tate. Here being not at my back door, Rasmussen growled. Who did you send? Calm down, Carl. His name's Davidson. He's a contractor we picked up. Reliable man. Keeps his mouth shut. We're considering putting him up for head of security, but Veers will take 
tasks and convincing. Meanwhile, I thought this would be a good way to vet him. I don't care about your personnel issues. I've sold nearly every piece of equipment I can to spare to pay for this. Why aren't you doing what I pay you to do? At the other end, Rasmussen could hear the roar and hiss of DC traffic as well as Tate's deep sigh. I can't get away every time we find a match. Davidson is a known quantity. Let the man in. I have to go. After a check that everything was shut down, covered up, or locked away, the doctor made his way to his office, traded his lab coat for a sports coat, and settled into his Herman Miller Aeron ergonomic chair. The office was richly appointed as the lab was bare. As headmaster of Harrow Hall Preparatory, Rasmussen's office served as a showpiece for the rich and well-connected parents. To them, he was an avuncular educator, the co-founder of the prosperous Chrysalis Biopharmaceuticals Corporation, whiling away his golden years in cushy semi-retirement. None of them ever suspected Rasmussen's true passion lay in the twisted knots of viral plasmids, that he labored tirelessly night after night, that he spent all his discretionary funds in pursuit of the dream that ultimately killed his father. Rasmussen keyed the intercom. I'll open the door and let you in. Come straight into my office. He settled back to wait, watching the screen as the courier made his way down the hall. A tap on the open office door. Davidson was a short man with a well-maintained physique of former military. He crossed the room in two strides and set a manila folder, a thumb drive, and a small tube sheathed in insulating foam on the desk. Rasmussen frowned up at him. This had better be substantive. We've invested a lot of company resources in our search. The courier rolled his shoulders and settled into a wide stance, his hand cla- hands clasped behind his back. Our contacts at the CDC let us know they found a candidate with the, ge- the genes you were looking for. We did the legwork and Tate okayed the report. Rasmussen harumphed and ruffled through the file. Like the previous ones, it contained photos and several pages of typed and handwritten notes. There was a copy of a birth certificate with several sections highlighted or circled. As Rasmussen scanned the documents, his heart rate quickened. A light sweat speckled his forehead and upper lip. Could it be possible? The subject's blood appeared to carry the virus, but not just another inferior strain. No, this one looked like the elegant, perfect base strain. He would finally complete the quest which had begun with Hitler's Liebensborn project, the quest for the Ubermensch, the next stage of human the next stage in human evolution. Sum this up for me, Mr. Davidson, he said, settling back in his chair. He'd save the file for later, to save her in private. Davidson arched an eyebrow proceeded with the details. The target was born overseas, most likely in Spain, but possibly in England, where his parents met. There are some irregularities on his birth certificate, but that's not uncommon for the State Department. He rattled off the information by memory. Pretty boring childhood started showing signs of being a super genius in high school with some science fair. Finished high school at 16, got his BS in biochemistry by 18. John Hopkins for his master's in genetics, just completed his PhD in virology. Rasmussen narrowed his eyes. And do you believe he meets our criteria? Davidson shrugged. Their parameters are high IQ, physically superior, high social aptitude, and between 18 and 28 years old, born overseas, possible health issues, he said. The target doesn't have any unusual medical history that I know of, but he's got the right genes and the right characteristics. Under the table, Rasmussen lightly lightly pounded his thighs in glee. Over the table, he kept his face impassive as he asked the most important question. How recent is the blood sample? He provided a sample for the CDC screening last week. I got a buddy to redirect it. Will that be enough? Davidson pointed to the wrapped tube. Rasmussen forced himself to lift, not snatch the vial. It will do fine. Keeping his voice calm was a challenge. 
When Subject 12 had proved unsuitable, he despaired of finding another soon, another anytime soon, let alone one so closely matched in the profile. Will there be anything else, Doctor? Davidson asked. No, no, that'll be all. Rasmussen waved the man away, then changed his mind. Wait, if this pans out, we'll need to put together another recruitment packet. Have the profile worked up and sent to Veers. Davidson nodded. He's more interested in public health and private sector. He's applied to the WHO, the ECD, ECDC, and the CDC. Want me to make sure his applications get lost? Yes, yes, do that. Nothing awful. We need him to pass our internal hiring review. But just don't let any of those bleeding heart cause groups get their claws into him. I want to make sure Chrysalis is the only option for our rising star. Oh, I'm hooked. I have to know more now. <laughs> Perfect hooking first chapter. Great job, MK. So thank you. So listeners, I hope you're hooked too. And I hope you go and find uh, her work. And um, thank you so much for being here. And um, I want to keep you on my list for any future works that come out so we can bring you back on. Oh, great. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a fun time. Yeah, thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter where you can be entered automatically each month to win a signed free copy of a book from an author that's appeared on the podcast. You can find out more at our website, www.squishpin.com. And finally, if you're an author in the Pacific Northwest and you would like to appear on the show, you can find out more on our website. So until next week, I hope you enjoy the journey. This is Vicki J. Carter signing off.